I kind of get excited about, you know, talk about the future of VC. I personally am looking for things generally, which no one else wants to fund, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I think that VC in general will be pushed away from the software stuff that it's grown up on or been defined by by the last 20 years. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Today, I'm very excited. We have Sam Lesson on the show. Sam is the general partner at Slow Ventures and the co-founder of Finn, but he is much, much more than that. Sam is, in the truest sense, a Silicon Valley insider. He's a part of the Harvard tech mafia, sold a company to Facebook. He's buddies with Zuckerberg and all of the other names you know through the Facebook team. He is, beyond all of that, extremely bright, an extremely deep thinker, an abstract think thinker, and I have always just been a big fan of listening to him and learning from him. We cover a bunch of stuff today, including how he sees the VC model changing, and he has some strong opinions about this, which are great, the future of the US and Chinese models of government, the evolution of me the media industry and its business models, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. Uh, let's start off. I, I always think it's helpful to give people a little background on your primary focus these days before we kind of dive into other stuff. Would you give a little color on Slow Ventures? Sure. So Slow is a firm that um, you know a few friends and I got together and put together, I guess, probably like about eight years ago now, um, that does seed stage investing. Uh, you know, it's kind of, there's actually, I think there's at this point, several firms that kind of have a similar history that look like this, but when we did, it was a little bit more unique, which is initially it had just basically been a few friends, we put together some cash uh, into a, a common vehicle. A lot of us were doing our own uh, angel investing anyway. And so we kind of like created a vehicle that we were investing out of. And, and it was pretty casual, uh, a few million bucks. And then, you know, um, after I left Facebook, uh, Kevin Colloran, who's, you know, one of the other GPs said, hey, let's make this a real firm, right? And so we, you know, we raised a $65 million fund and a $145 million fund and kind of have raised about a half a billion dollars to this point that we've deployed into early stage companies. Um, we're hyper generalists. So, you know, we've done everything from brands like Casper and, you know, Allbirds we were seed investors in to things like Robinhood and Slack and Postmates, like kind of tech core stuff. And then, you know, we've also done a ton of crypto. Um, so I, I, I took a, a few million dollars and did a bunch of crypto investing you know, out of the fund starting in like 2016, 17 has become a major focus. So, you know, we're hardcore generalists. Why is it called slow? That um, seems to be antithetical to most of the venture I mean, world. I, I mean, look, there's a bunch of stories for this you can get into. I mean, one version of the story is there was a, there was a great restaurant called Slow Club we liked, um, you know, in San Francisco. Um, we also just like, you know, the, the more high-minded high, high version is we like to point out that, you know, a lot of these things that are supposed to be overnight successes start out really slowly and take a long time to ramp. So we think about it that way. Right. I think there's another version, which is like, candidly, it's just funny to name a venture fund slow. Um, so <laughs> there's a, That's actually what I assumed it was. Yeah, there, there's the some record. level. I think that like, 
you know, we, we joke that one of the core firm values, we did like a values exercise. One of the core firm values we came up with was the poo emoji. Um, like we think you can't take yourself too seriously. Um, so we've always, we've always joked, we actually now have a, a growth fund, which isn't officially called slow growth, but we like the idea of having a fund called <laughs> slow growth. <laughs> you should have named it that. Why did well, you not? I mean, what did you name it? It's the slow growth fund, so it's damn close, right? It's not quite right. actually named slow growth, but that's kind of the, the joke is, is you that's know. That's amazing. You know, you got to have a little fun. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so what, what's your, for people listening who are entrepreneurs, what's the firm's pitch to founders? Like, why take your money? Because um, we're good. Uh, no, I mean, I think like, uh, you know, our, um, we don't like to pitch the way some other, like, we're not your babysitters, you know, like some people like, we're going to have you all these services for you. And like, we're going to handhold you through the entrepreneurial journey. And like, candidly, having been entrepreneurs and built companies, we think that's all kind of bullshit. Like entrepreneurship's like super lonely. It's super hard. We'll never know your business as well as you will. Right. Um, but you know, there are a few places where we think we can be uniquely helpful, um, in moments like one. And we love being available on text messenger, right? So like our view is like, Text us when you need us. Like, we're not on your board. We don't want to, like, get up in your business. We want to be super collaborative. But, you know, there's places where we can be helpful, either from a product perspective. We've seen a lot of companies. We've built a lot of companies, actually. Like, you know, people have questions about, how do I recruit this role? Or, like, what do I do strategically here? Like, we're really good at texting. Um, and then I think a little more formally, you know, a lot of our LPs, not all of them, but, like, several of our significant LPs are kind of, like, the best Series A investors in the world. Um, and you know, the reality is there's only one thing that kills seed companies, which is running out of money. Um, and so we're, I think we've gotten pretty darn good at when we work with companies, helping them identify quickly, not all the things they have to build, right? Because you have to build tons of things to make a company successful, but what's going to matter and be answer changing for the next Series A, for the Series A fund? What do you really have to hit to hit that? And then making sure that we're actually socializing the companies and helping them talk to you, not just you know, anyone or the, the name, but the right people um, that they should be talking to about the next round. And I think, you know, you know, we take that pretty seriously. Like as a partnership, we basically do rolling calls with every major Series A investor in Silicon Valley every few weeks to kind of understand our portfolio, talk about what's next, talk about what they're looking for and what metrics look like so we can really guide people through that very critical period. If that makes sense. That makes tons of sense. Um, you're at an interesting place because you're kind of at the nexus of a lot of different dimensions of the tech ecosystem. VC via slow, you're out of Facebook, um, you're an entrepreneur, and I know you for a long time now, and I know you to be a very big abstract thinker. I would love to hear your perspective on the current state of venture capital and how you see it evolving. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I just wrote, the other thing I like to do a lot is write. And you know, I just wrote, my wife founded a publication called The Information. So it's a subscription-only publication, covers the tech industry super deeply, and I think super well. Um, and uh, I wrote a, a, a kind of long essay. It's probably the thing that ended up getting going most viral I've written recently about kind of what I was talking about, like the, the end of software VC. Um, and comparing a little bit to earlier cycles where, you know, venture capital... Um, it's kind of like a thing that comes episodically in, in, in new industries. If you think about it, like no industry should remain depending on venture capital forever. Because if you think about it, venture capital is literally the most expensive money in the world, right? Like, you know, there is, you know, it's available to early stage companies, but the price is 
really high, right? It's, you know, and that's how venture capital is such a great financial business if you're good at it, right? Because you're basically selling the most expensive commodity money in the world. Now, so what happens is, is you start out, you have a new business idea, a new thesis, maybe it's SaaS or cloud or like whatever area you want to talk about. Crypto, certainly, you know, is I think going through this. And initially, everyone's like, well, these are really interesting ideas, but this shit's crazy. Like, I don't want to invest in this. So you, you call people like me and I'm like, wow, that's actually awesome. Here's some very expensive money. Let's go explore it. But once those models get figured out, I was like, oh, yeah, I know how to value this. I know what the metrics are. We all want to play in it. Then over time, you know, industries grow out of VC. And I think that's kind of happening in software right now, where like the reason you see all these huge mega funds coming in and, you know, the leverage buyout asset managers getting into doing, you know, growth rounds is like everyone kind of understands the model. They know how good the businesses are and the money gets priced accordingly. So all of a sudden the super expensive venture capital money is just like money. Like you can get, you know, you have a good software idea, you can get it from anywhere. Right. So my view is that one of the, I mean, what's happening right now is venture is at a point where there's a bunch of stuff that used to be software venture capital of Silicon Valley which is really not venture capital anymore, right? And then the real venture capitalists, some people will say, great, that's awesome. I made a shitload of money as a VC. Now I'm going to be an asset manager and that's fine. I'll just raise a hundred times more money and you know, play against the East Coast firms. You know, I think the real people who like VC, like me, we just go find wilder new shit to back, right? And like, that's kind of what I think we're in the cycle of right now. I mean, you know, crypto has been for sure, you know, you know and I am a big long-term bull, but like, you know, we've done unbelievably well backing early stage protocols from four years ago. You know, we were, you know, seed investors in Solana, which is, you know, a 3000 X return for us right now. Right. So like that was in an era when no one was doing that. That's kind of become more mainstream. It's no longer as good a business. You know, we're still looking for new opportunities in crypto, but then even going into other stuff that people won't back yet. So I kind of get excited about, you know, talk about the future of VC. I personally am looking for things generally, which no one else wants to fund. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that EVC in general will be pushed away from the software stuff that it's grown up on or been defined by by the last 20 years. Do you think that will apply to the super early stage or just growth? I, I wonder that some of the firms you're talking about, I agree, they're, they're crowding in. We're never, I've never seen a convergence of private equity and venture capital um, in the same industry until the last three, four, five years. But the private equity guys, I don't know if they understand how to invest in companies pre-cash flow, pre-operating metrics? I think, so I, you know, I said in that article, and, and I stand by the fact that I think seed is relatively more protected than series A on beyond. Like once you're at an A, like it's just the numbers game at this point, right? Um, even though there's a lot of company building left to do. Um, I think seed is relatively protected, but here's what's happening is, you know, it's kind of like um, everyone's main course is someone else's appetizer, right? Um, and so what's happening in right. some ways is there's a lot of companies that are coming in and saying, oh, that's cute. I can write, it used to be like, oh, well, like I'm a growth investor, but whatever, I'll write a checks. Like, who cares? I don't care if I make money on it or not, but like, it's just a way to like get an action. Now you have a bunch of series A firms saying, oh, well, we'll write seed checks. Why not? Like, who cares? It's just marketing for us, right? Candidly, we do this. Like we, we do angel checks at up to a quarter million dollars. And like, we, you know, we're not trying to actually make our fund on that, right? Like that's kind of right. like to be in the industry and be supportive and helpful. But so because of that dynamic, I think seed is impacted, although less, um, is what I would say. What other sectors are you interested that you think are kind of 
outside the domain of more traditional capital sources? Are you look, you mentioned crypto? Are you looking at space? What else is out there? No, I mean we actually well we have done some space stuff. You know we were seed investors. I, I put a check into Astra, which just went public through a SPAC and like was a, you know a space company. So we will do stuff like that. It's a little wilder. I mean, the, the, you're, you're going to laugh at this because you've heard me pitch this 20 years ago. But I think there's a few wilder opportunities we're looking at. Some of them are kind of in the crypto space broadly, but, you know, aren't mainstream yet. And like the world of DAOs and things like that that I'm pretty excited about. And the other space, again, to, you'll laugh at, is we started directly backing humans. Um, so investing in people rather than companies. Um, and... Um, we're doing this in the creator space. We're doing this with entrepreneurs. You know, we backed some great entrepreneurs, not for a company. We're just like, look, we'll buy 5% of whatever you do for the next 30 years, right? And like- And how does that work structurally? Can you explain that? So there's two different structures we've created. Um, one's kind of more entrepreneurial or focused. The other is kind of more creator oriented. Um, the entrepreneurial one's like you basically just boot a C-Corp, right? And then you kind of sign an agreement that says, look, anything you do will be owned by the C-Corp. Right. And you're the biggest shareholder in it and we're minority investors in it. And I think this has some huge advantages, um, actually, for entrepreneurs, for some entrepreneurs, especially ones who are going to be prolific over the long term, because it allows them in theory to do things like skip their seed rounds, right? And own more of their businesses. Like all of a sudden, if you have a hold co that we've helped finance where you can churn out companies effectively, almost like an incubator, but you don't have to do seed financing anymore. Then you get to own more of your companies, skip right to A's, right? Because you can go longer, right, on your own balance sheet. And I think that's a very successful strategy that is going to emerge. And well, by the way, anyone who's listening, if you're doing this, give us a call. And then on the creator side, you know, I'm a big believer, you know, historically, the way a brand was built is you start a product, you know, pet rock, whatever, I don't care what it is. It gets really big. People are like, oh my God, that's a great brand. We love this brand. Does this awesome stuff for us. And the brand's like, cool, now I can do more stuff. Like Amazon's a good example. Like grow up as a bookseller, get to do, you earn the right to do more and more products, but the brand comes after a product. With all these platforms, Instagram, YouTube, whatever, what you're seeing is all these creators start incredible brands with huge loyalty and no products and then layer products in later, right? And the thing is, these guys are all completely cash flow bound pretty much, right? And so we're very interested in financing creators broadly. We've done some investments in companies that do this, like Juice Creative, you know, things like that. But we're also literally directly saying, like, we have a structure where we'll say, look, you know, we boot an investment company that's like an LLC attached broadly to you, right? We built legal docs around this. And we basically say, look, you know, we will just give you no strings attached, you know, money. um, And we want a small slice, right, of whatever you produce over the next period, equity, you know, cash flow, et cetera. so it, it's early, but we've now done this and we're doing this a few times and like we're going to do more of it and we're building a fund around that as well. Um, What's the largest check you've written into a person? Uh, $1.5 million. Got it. And you but said you're I about think, to go out and raise a fund for this? Well, again, like we, we basically have like a fund running where we've kind of committed capital to this strategy, but it's not like, a, it's kind of like our slow growth fund, right? Well, actually, that's right. not quite fair. <laughs> slow growth actually is at least technically a legal entity. This, so um, this is slow people fund? Basically, the... I mean, it's called a, we're, calling it, <laughs> we're calling it a creator fund because we're not that good at naming. But the um, but right. yeah, so we're we're doing. I mean, th- I think there's a lot to do in that space broadly, and there's a bunch of reasons why. You know, we did a bunch of ISA world investing. We really believe in effectively equity financing for people broadly, right? And I think there's a lot of slices at that that are going to be very interesting. But you know, I wouldn't. You know, um, 
I think someday there'll probably be growth equity for people, right? In these types of brands. But like, you know, this is the type of thing we talk about weirder stuff. Like that's the type of stuff I get interested in. Um, that, you know, I'm not, when we're doing these deals, we're not competing with some other funds because no one else is doing this. We're competing with like, is this a good deal that is awesome for everyone? Right. Um, now you're focusing on slow these days, but I know you'd started a company recently and it's not that recent anymore. Uh, do you want to give a quick overview of Finn? Sure. So Finn, um, Finn's a great, I mean, so, so when I left Facebook, uh, I was very conflicted about whether I wanted to be an operator or an investor as I have always been because the grass is always greener when you're operating, when you're operating, you're like, I, God, this is fucking hard. Like investing is that can be broad, whatever, you know, when you're investing, you're like, well, this is cool and really interesting ideas, but I don't really do anything. And like that has its own challenges. And so I kind of tried to have my, I did have my cake and eat it too. We started doing investing, you know, with friends and building a fund. And then, you know, I was, um, I'm, I, I adore Andrew Cortina, one of the two co-founders of Venmo. I, I love Ekrum as well. Um, you know, I had been their first investor and helped them find their first institutional capital and in like in the early days of that. And so Cortina was also kind of finishing up his corporate gig, having sold Venmo. And we said, we got to start something together. And so we started a company, Finn, you know, where we started with saying, look, we're really interested not in, at that time, everyone was obsessed with like, oh my God, like AI is perfect. We're going to have these AI assistants, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, we know this technology, this complete bullshit, right? But, but mm. we are interested in how AI and machine learning can augment human processes. And so we ended up saying, well, you know, it'd be cool to build is like her, like a Siri as a super Siri and just mix in humans, like see if we can figure out how to do that. And the idea was, well, we'll build all the technology from the ground up ourselves, nothing off the shelf. And let's just figure out the problem space. And we built a pretty cool assistant business. Um, this has been tried a few times, really hard. Um, but we did a pretty good job. And we got to be gross margin positive and growing and lots of loyal customers. But we, in the process of doing that, actually figured out what we found was an even better business, <laughs> which is instrumenting knowledge work. Uh, you know, so if you're you know, working in a factory, everything is instrumented, right? If you are working in front of... What do you of mean a, by instrumented? I mean, you know, understanding per task, exactly how each person's completing something, right? What clicks are they doing? What are they focusing on? What knowledge-based pages are they using? Like, what is their workflow in knowledge-based situations to complete tasks? And then how do you optimize it? And so there's this whole world, as, as I'm sure you know, of like RPA and like all this type of stuff going on, robotic process information, you know, how do you do it? But in the end of the day, I mean, I did start my career at Bain. And like, until you have a clean, big data set of like, what's actually happening, it's super hard to know, like, what to automate, how, what's the payoff of it. And so we built a pretty big, uh, we built basically this instrumentation suite that we first we needed for ourselves. Like we had 100 people doing these tasks. And we're like, I don't, we, we don't know how to fix this or improve it, because we don't know what they're doing. So we better figure that out. So the classic story, I actually am proud that I am. Um, I, I don't consider myself a real engineer, but I did actually build the, the first version of this plugin, right, um, myself in a hackathon because I really want to understand the workflow of some of the agents. And we realized it's an incredible business because, you know, you have, you know, huge companies. Airbnb is, you know, a, you know, a big customer, people like that, like that um, they have huge knowledge work teams, right, doing customer service, things like that. And like, you know having them understand what's actually happening so they can, can scientifically improve the process is, is a very important missing piece, right? And so... So it, to make sure I understand it now, so it's looking at what the knowledge workers are doing 
creating essentially patterns around what the routines and work is so that a third part like management can look at it and, and turn dials. Yeah, we can understand base well and like and understand, you know, exactly how to improve the process, you know, where gaps are, but basically say like, look, I'm just gonna create a full data set, time and motion studies, you know, every second of every day what every single person on this ten thousand person team is doing per task. And then I'm gonna start pulling insights of where I can optimize, where I can make a process better, which knowledge based pages are broken, you know, where when mistakes are made, why, right? Um, scientifically, and then continuously monitor and drive that. And so long when it was saying well, this became a pretty good business, great business, we think it's gonna be a huge company, like I, yeah. you know. Um, but we kind of got to the point where, you know, Cortina and I are like I think pretty good zero to one guys, but we're not necessarily the best one to two guys in the enterprise SaaS world um, you've ever seen. Like I, we're not, we're smart, but like we're not the best. And so we, we found the best, which is, you know, Evan Kamak, who's the CEO of that brought him in, have kind of set the company up for success. And, you know, we're, we're both still involved, but, but he's driving the ship. Now for people looking at these spaces, right? You picked one of the, the hardest, roads to go doing the personal automation when you the v1 of fin the assistant yeah. the personalized assistant that's really hard technology to build because there's a number of applications of building a real her totally are infinite yep how much of it was manual in the beginning and i asked this for the perspective of someone listening who's considering a kind of a, a machine learning or extremely complex technology as a venture what is the right balance for manual versus automation when you get started to set yourself up for success and, you know, proper trial so, and error. So what I'd say is, um, when Cortina and I did this, we did this pretty eyes wide open, having both founded and sold companies successfully and kind of being in a financially secure place and being young and hungry and knowing what we were doing. Right. And like what I, the reason I mentioned that is like, don't start this type of a business. Right. We did right. this super hard. When I saw you were doing this, do I was like, wow. Well, we, we, we did that again, like not to like, we did that on purpose because we were like interested in the problem set area. And like, we're like, look, the only way to actually figure this out is to just like actually start doing it and put pedal to the metal. And like, we'll figure out, we know, we'll, we know it's interesting. We know we'll figure out cool stuff. But like, again, like we also did everything custom. Like we built all our own software. And you're like, well, that's a dumb decision if you're a startup most of the time, except for that was kind of the point, right? The point was like, okay, like, can we think about this end to end and build the right infrastructure as part of it that puts us in a very different place? And so I think it's not a great way to be an entrepreneur. Like we were doing it having from a place of a lot of safety uh, and, you know, like, like wanting to take something on like that because we felt uniquely positioned to try. Um, so the first thing I give is like, don't do that. Right. Um, now, if you are going to do it, <laughs> right. What I <laughs> Having said that you shouldn't do it and knowing that you shouldn't listen to seed investors, you should do whatever you want, right? What I'd right. say is like, um, you know, look, we, we started out like completely manual. Like literally we would play this like game where like, you know, one of us would pretend to be asking questions and the other person would literally start up being like, how would I complete this? And like, what software would I want? And then how would I speed it up? And then, you know, things like that. And I do think that that's basically the best approach to most automation is like, just, you know, you literally like play a game like where you, you know, with the with the kind of, you know, masked man behind the scene, you know, the Wizard of Oz style, right. and then you figure out how to chip away at the problems. And we have invested in a lot of businesses. We would jokingly call them AAI or artificial artificial intelligence businesses. <laughs> um, Love that. Where, Definitely like, that. Yeah, AAI, where like with AAI, you know, we've invested in, you know, things like, um, uh, like we've invested in some wealth management companies. We've invested in a lot of things that like fit this pattern because we think we understand it at this point, which is like, okay, like which of these businesses 
none of which can be as broad as Finn was, was, but like are good places to build these types of like semi-automated, more efficient human loop services effectively versus things that are just like fools errands. Um, yeah, fascinating because there's a place for this in the world, right? And especially good entrepreneurs who know how to chip away at the uh, at the clay. Yeah, the, the thing the thing I'd say though is you also have to I think know yourself, uh, which is I think, and this is one thing I think Koti and I didn't like fully internalize when we started the Fin Assistant business is, you know, there's an enormous difference between software and service entrepreneurs. They're both really valuable, and you can make a lot, you can create a lot of value and, and build very good companies building services or software, but. I think the leadership required for them is very different, right? And so there's certain, like, I think that's one thing that, like, we kind of came to. I wouldn't say the primary reason for the way we pivoted, but, like, a part of it for sure, which is, like, we kind of realized we're, like, deeply software people, right? Um, and, like, services are just, I, I find them brutal. That doesn't mean that, like, they're not important, and it doesn't mean that, like, you can't build great service businesses, but, like, from a personal emotional standpoint, I find services brutal um, in a way that I, I and I like software. <laughs> Right. You, you mean in terms of dealing with the humans, the employees and the customer. It. And like the whole, and like, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of like my wife's business. You know, my wife in found the information and it's a journalism business. Like they have to make their product every day, right? Like they can't take right. a day off. Like there's no like, right. there's no like, okay, well we solved that. Now we're done. It's like, oh my God, like we delivered something. Now we have to deliver it again tomorrow. Right. And I just, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's who you are. Like, you, I think you just have to know yourself a little bit. And like, I'm not, I don't like delivering things every day. Like I like really delivering deeply sometimes and then like not delivering anything for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. So I'm glad you mentioned the information because ever since I've known you back when you were at Dropio, uh, the company you sold to Facebook, you had been obsessed with paywalls. That was a Sam lesson special. Always there. Yeah. I do uh, like and lo paywalls. and behold, the, the wife has launched uh, a very successful paywall media site. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the information? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, your point about obsession with paywalls. I mean, I, when Amazon first released like a payment platform APIs, the first thing I did was I built a company called Letterly. You remember Letterly back in the day, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was basically Substack in 2008, right? Or not, right. whatever it was. Where it was You're like, look, you know, you can, um, you know, write a newsletter and put a price on it and we'll like, you know, collect the subscription fees for you and, you know, email this address and we'll distribute it to whoever subscribed, right? Very simple. Actually did really well in its time. Like that grew really quickly. So we're like, ah, there's something here. But like I got distracted with other businesses and Facebook and things like that. So that kind of thing petered out. Although it was cool to see Substack eventually come back around to it. Um, yeah, look, the information, I mean, you know, my wife was a longtime Wall Street Journal reporter, um, had written a huge number of articles for the Wall Street Journal, you know, just very hard worker, um, you know, the tech industry, you know, in, in that in, in an era. And, you know, she's like, look, I think that this was an, in that period, people were really heavily biased towards like traffic and, you know, just having a lot of page views and people using the internet that way. We can get into why that was. Um, but she was like, look, I think journalism is valuable. And like, I'm going to make a serious, you know, push towards I will do high quality journalism and you will pay me for it. Like, at the time, that was shocking. Like, I love you know, Business Insider, when she launched, literally wrote an article being like, everyone's laughing at Jessica Lesson. And like, it's one of those like, yeah, huh. you can laugh, motherfuckers, right? Like, <laughs> you know, um, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll see who has the last laugh, as my wife right. definitely is. You know, you fast forward, you know, I guess like seven, eight years since she founded it. And like, you know, subscription media, at least, uh, you know, in a lot of circles went from being crazy 
to like the core of everyone's business. You know, they they were very ahead of their time in terms of doing that. You know, the company's super successful. It grows really nicely. It's you know they do a quite a bit of revenue and have you know a very large subscriber base in tech and finance. And you know they're able to support dozens of full time journalists covering this stuff. So everyone's always complaining about the death of journalism and da da da. It's like maybe or maybe you just need like a better business model and to pay journalists to do really well and you get good journalism like it's not rocket science um i think we're seeing that concept spread out more broadly right there's um there's a lot of podcasts popping up now that are really focusing on quality and getting away from the ads uh there's a political podcast i picked up called breaking point mm-hmm. where they try to argue both the left and the right perspective and that's useful unto itself but they're trying to get away from uh, the simplicity and narrow messaging of the mainstream media. Yeah. Well, look, I think there's positives and negatives to that, to be clear. The reason I think ad-supported media is pretty dumb is because, look, I spent a long time at Facebook. You know, you can look at Google, which is probably the most successful business model in the history of the world. It's like, you will lose, right, to tech companies for ad dollars and reach, right? Like, because TikTok is way more compelling than anything you're ever going to make, right? Like, just straight up, right? And so, like, I don't, you know, um, I think it's a fool's errands for most media brands to really be in the ads business, though I do think that obviously some have pulled off niche audiences and they have good salespeople and they do okay. Um, I think people are willing to pay for things they value to that point, right? And so, like, why not charge them? Like, align your incentives and, like, with your audience, I think is great because then you can produce what they want and what they need, not what, you know, I do believe that whoever's paying you is kind of ultimately your real customer, right? And I think that, you know, right. in terms of decision-making, that's important. And then I'd say, like, look, I think... Um, the knock on subscription businesses, which I think is true, is that they almost by definition will reflect what their customers care about and want, which might not be like always completely perfectly in the public interest, right? If that makes sense. And you're going to end up with smaller communities. Like, you know, if, if a hundred years ago, everyone read the same three newspapers and then eventually watched the same two television channels, had the same information, shared viewpoints, shared perspective. That's pretty cool function for democracy. You know, it's, it has its own challenges, but at least everyone's on the same page and getting the same information. The second you get into subscription niches, the world will diverge. You're going to have more and more different takes on I think that's generally very good and very healthy, but there are costs to that. Yeah, I mean, l- let me just take it, ask a broad question on this topic. Do you think the kind of news business model as a whole is broken from a civil responsibility perspective? Um, I don't know. I mean, if you think if you history, if you look at the history of the news industry going back hundreds of years, there's a great book called The Invention of News. Mm-hmm. And we have been through so many cycles at this point of private newsletters that are expensive that cater or give real information to the people that need it, right? And, like, are willing to value it. And then eventually some technology comes out and someone goes for the mass play. And then that mass play gets super scammy and spammy because that's where they're getting paid. And, like, candidly, the scintillation is what people want. And then all the elites say, oh, my God, this is crap. I need real information and pull back into private newsletters and news sources that they pay a lot of money for. So, like, this isn't a new cycle, right? Um, you know, and I think it will continue for a long time. And it's kind of a rational cycle. Now, the public interestness of news, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think um, 
I think there's a bunch of democratic functions, which like businesses are not very well set up to fundamentally support. And I, you know, like for instance, I'm not a guy, I don't believe in double bottom lines or triple bottom lines or quadruple bottom lines. Like businesses make money, <laughs> right? Like that's what they do. If you don't like the way they make money, then like the government needs to change the framework or the rules by which they make money. And like, that's the government's job. And like, you know, ideally you have good people who are making the right decisions. Ideally ESG aligns with the bottom line, but like, being like, well, businesses, we need to overload that concept with more responsibilities, right? Because they're successful and good and like they need to do more things, I think is like a very wrong approach personally. Um, so when you get into the civic responsibility news, I think it's a tough place, right? Like, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I'm glad that journalists and I think people should feel uh, like a sense of importance to obviously the truth and reality. And like, I think that's actually just good business. Like, I think if you, if you publish a bunch of lies or untruths, at some point people are just not going to pay you anymore unless they're really scintillating. And it's just entertainment in which case they might, but like, they're not paying you as a news company anymore. They're paying you because it's comical. Right. Um, right. But that's been confusing to folks. I know. I, I think that's actually the, I think that's the real problem is that historically, if you think about it, um, you were a newspaper, you're so profitable that you, act, and there was nothing else to look at. There's nothing else interesting going on. Like you were stuck at home reading a newspaper. There's no fucking TV or radio or people to hang out with or social media. So you kind of had this weird monopoly status where like you basically could shove news down people's throat, a lot of which they maybe didn't even want, but you were also their only entertainment source. So they kind of put up with it for the entertainment, if that made sense. Mm -hmm. And what happens is with technology, is that it turns out there's like all these classes of businesses that are way more entertaining than the news, right? And so it's really hard, unless you're selling to a professional audience that values the truth, right, to ram news down people's throat, right? Because they're like, well, I'd rather just be entertained. Like TikTok is really entertaining, right? And right. so, I don't know. I think these are kind of like natural business dynamics that are paying out and like the historical model of like, you know, everyone trusts the New York Times, which, by the way, you shouldn't trust the New York Times. The New York Times is fine, right? Like, but they're, they definitely have their viewpoints. They definitely come with oh, an agenda, sure, yeah. right? Um, they're pretty naked about that. Like, you know, I think, um, I think those era, I think it's just like a quaint bygone era. <laughs> I mean, you've been looking at and studying the kind of the communication space one form or another for a really long time. Then you landed at Facebook. I mean, it's obviously a major topic of our day. Who, can or should be responsible for preventing the spread of misinformation on social media? How do we deal well, with that? Well, look, I can only give you, obviously, my very limited opinion. I haven't worked at Facebook right. in a long time now. But mm -hmm. look, here, sure. here's the deal. Um, you know, like, um, what's that? there's a great, like, Simpsons, like, old man yells at the wind type, <laughs> or whatever. Like, here, here's, here's the reality, is in the end of the day, it's like we've lived for a long time in a physical space that we really understood the rules of, right? Like we understood how information flowed and we understood how to interact with each other. And, and candidly, there was a nice iterated game to it where like, you know, if you lie to your neighbor a bunch and they're your neighbor, like there's real cost if they don't trust you anymore, right? And there's like, and, and things like, if you think about that. We also lived in a world where like, you don't think there was misinformation floating around the world like a hundred years ago? It was rampant, right? The problem right. was it was in back rooms, in living rooms, you know, in conversation spaces we had no ability to measure or understand, right? So what's happened with the internet, and I think what's happening very real time is a few things. One is like the stakes um, around communication, especially with with light forms of identity, 
right, have been really shifted dramatically. Because you're no longer interacting with the 10 people that you're going to interact with your whole life. You're interacting with 8, 8 billion voices, right, most of whom you have no idea who they are or who to trust or what's going on, right? And so I think that's a really cognitively dissonant thing for society to deal with. And then, you know, beyond that, when you think about the measurability of this stuff, all of these terrible things, misinformation, hate speech, all this terrible stuff that has been going on forever, all of a sudden is laid bare, right? You're like, oh my God, we can measure this now? This is terrible. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like all of a sudden when you add that measurability and that insight, you're like, oh my God, like, wow, there's a lot of bad stuff in the world. And I think that's like a real shock moment for people. So there's like a fundamental technological set of problems. And then there's like a realization that's happened with the digitization of, of content that I think is, is really scary for people. I'll be honest, my fear this is like an adolescence, like we're in an adolescent phase of the internet. The yeah. thing that I think we would really screw up for the long term is actually bad and over-regulation and control of speech, not under-regulation of control of speech. And the, the reason is you see a bunch of bad stuff, you're like, oh my god, this is terrible, like what tools do we have to stop this heinous stuff, right? That we would maybe there all along, but now you see and you're like, you want to have that reaction. But the problem is, is like, look, technology is super powerful, like Historically, you might ban a type of speech from a public square, but you'd never stop it. Like speech is free, speech is open, right? Like people can always say things in back rooms. And I think that's an incredibly important escape valve for scary authoritarian governments, right? And really bad stuff. Like I think it's very important that we have the freedom to say whatever we want, wherever. The technology actually threatens that for the first time in a pretty unfathomable way, right? Like, you know, there's an old Russian joke, which is like, oh, in Russia, it's not that we don't have free speech, we just might not have freedom after speech, <laughs> right? Uh, which is kind of a, a joke about that. That was true. I mean, like you could never re-regulate, mm. really. You could only right. regulate. Now, but you all penalize. of a sudden, but you penalize. That's fine. Like, I can say, okay, I'm going to say something, and I know I'm going to penalize, but at least I can say it. I can get the ideas out. This idea that in the digital space, I can set to perfect censorship, public, private, whatever, is completely terrifying, right? Um, and like, I think actually one of the most existential threats to humanity in the midterm. It's an abstract one. And people are bad. They're very bad at trading short term, real realities for midterm existential threats. We're just terrible at it. It's the same reason we can't control global warming, right? Is we just, we're absolutely awful at this. But I, I do worry that, you know, you talk about regulating speech on the internet, who should do it, that, it, uh, you know, the risks that we use arguments about speech we don't like even extreme stuff like you know child porn is like the perfect example everyone hates child porn and so you say child porn i was like i have no response i can't argue pro child porn no one would ever would do that but like you know using that as having with apple right now as a way to pry into visibility access and ultimately control of human speech is utterly terrifying and i think anything we can do to push back against that is is very important in the midterm the long-term society it, it's we just had uh, someone on the show who is basically an expert on U.S.-Chinese relations. And we talked a lot about the Chinese model. And I think beyond the economic competition, the prospect of potential war, all these awful things that might be coming, there's a very interesting sociological dynamic right now where we have two case studies developing in parallel. We've got America, which has values-free speech uh, on the internet, but there is no single source of truth. Yep. And... Friends and family members think the world is completely upside down from what I think. Yep. And then in China, there is a single source of truth, which is the government, but there's no opportunity to deviate from it. 
So it's this, which one's going to hold <laughs> well, is very and interesting. And here's the problem. The problem we do face globally in society is the Chinese model is definitely more efficient and very oh, successful in the, in, the short, more efficient. in the short run. It's way less resilient to cataclysmic out, you know, outcomes, right? Like you can't get rid of dictators. That are, you talk about that, that version. That's very scary. Um, and it's also not clear that in the long run, it's actually a better model, right? Because the reality is you cut off all this creativity and discovery and innovation that might be super important. So it destroys a lot of resilience and a lot of creativity that I think is like pretty critical for humanity's long-term. But the problem is it just like any authoritarian or like authoritarian is even harsh. Any, any dictatorial centrally driven system it is more efficient in the short run, right? And so I think that's like the really big challenge is, you know, the, my big argument is this. Even, like, here's another thing about it. China's China. The U.S. has a choice. The U.S. can choose to effectively go in the direction of being, I'll call it China light, right? Or it can go in the direction of being like, no, we'll be the free world, right? And like, so the question is, which did the U.S. do? Like, you're in, you know, Europe, I'd argue, is going towards the China light version, right? Um, I think they're doing a successful competitive strategy for the future, being like a shittier version of China, because we'll never get, we'll never be able to do what they do, right? But being like a shittier version of them is a terrible strategy. Like what you want to do in our position, even forget like anything else competitively, is stake out the opposite end of the spectrum and wait for the wheel of history to turn in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> right, because they have a single point of failure, right, in the government. Yeah, you know, right. They're, they're like, spending a lot of time. You know time. what? Single points of failure. It's just like a database, like versus a distributed crypto system. It's like it's incredibly efficient until it's not. <laughs> until it breaks. Yeah. Right. Well, let's talk about decentralization. Um, where we're on the topics, you know, over the last 50 years or so, uh, you know, this technology has enabled decentralization of a whole bunch of institutions that people never thought would be broken up. Internet, Bitcoin, all these things have kind of broken things apart. What are the institutions that are still centralized that you think will be broken apart in the future? Well, interestingly, I think the, the cycles of centralization and decentralization are constant. And I'd also say, keep, keep in mind, like, you know, what technology does, I don't think it's quite so simple to say it's just decentralized a lot of stuff. What I'd say is like, there's a lot of stuff, the technology always makes the middle drop out, right? Uh, when you get mm. more efficient and clear about things. So what's really happened is a barbelling effect where you have hyper centralization and hyper decentralization, but things that were kind of centralized go away, right? Is what I would say. They, ha they, they get replaced by one of the two extremes. So yeah, the internet has actually probably centralized human speech, right? Mm. Um, information, whatever, unfathomably, right? Um, you know, you think about even like we were talking about news before. It's like how many newspapers there used to be, how many newspapers are there now, right? Like, you know, right. like or you know, how many people you know open up Google every day when they have a quiet? Like, there's massive centralization, right? On one hand, you know, Facebook and communication. Like, what percentage of human communication is now on a single platform versus this, it's it's massive, right? And at the same time, to your point there's a whole bunch of functions and institutions that used to be semi-centralized or much more centralized that are getting, you know, blown into decentralized bits across the ether. And I think there's a lot of competition between these two poles. So, you know, when you say what's centralizing gets decentralized, I, you know, I don't, I don't have like a ready-made great answer for that. Um, but I actually mm -hmm. think that like a lot of things that are centralized will get decentralized. And you know what, interestingly, I think a lot of things that are decentralized will get centralized, right? And we're which, just going to go through What those. comes to mind when you say that? That's what's going to get centralized. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think, for instance, let's talk really big picture. It's like, what's going to happen to nation states? Like, we have a weird number of nation states right now, right? right? Like, you know, that is a kind of a semi-centralized system, right? You would expect that with the internet, right, we're either going to go towards, you know, the the crazy tech visions of self-sovereignty and, like, you know, digital citizenship and, you know, not even digital citizenship, but, like, you know, I belong to some tribe I just invented and it doesn't matter where I'm located. Like, that's one version, which would be the decentralized future and, like, crypto people like that and... The other version is actually like, like you're going to end up with like two spheres, like a Chinese sphere and an American sphere. And like, you know, that's about it. Right. And like a lot of other national borders just become completely irrelevant. Right. Um, and that's been so, a pattern throughout history as technology, uh, information and transportation have become easier. You've just seen consolidation. I mean, there used yeah, to I mean, be 15 Italian states and now there's one. Well, I think right? even the United European States. Union. I think yeah. even the United States, like there are the 50 states we have completely irrational, right? Like made tons of sense when it took a day to travel across, you know, New Hampshire makes no sense, right. To have the number of states we have at this point. Right. And it's causing a lot of problems, right. Because the reality is like take like local taxes, you know, in a frictionless world, you know, a bunch of my colleagues now are Texans, right. Or, you know, and like, I just, I think that like that we have an unstable number of states. Now the problem is it's our system is so deeply entrenched. Right. Um, no. That it's kind of hard to imagine it. But, you know, it's like it's funny. You know, this federal government used to regulate interstate commerce, which actually wasn't that much commerce. Now everything's interstate commerce. So, like, you know, th- right. there's a really interesting set of questions about what centralizes or decentralizes. Um, but we really shouldn't have 50 states. Let's be clear. So I want to take a left turn here. Uh, I know your dad uh, was a, a big figure. I know he passed away a handful of years ago. Um. He was a legend on the Wall Street side of the world uh, and then had his own venture fund. Yep. Um, before he passed, he wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling us quickly about the book, Lessons, Lessons? Yes. Yeah, so my, my, look, my dad was, I love my dad. He's an amazing guy. He was a visionary for sure. Um, and, and obviously a very hard worker as well. And had, a, you know, as you said, an amazing career on Wall Street. And then really, as he used to say, you know, there was a period where he was the largest East Coast angel investor which he used to say is like kind of like being like saying you're the smartest utilities executive. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the, um, you know, but yeah. And, you know, look, he, he had actually several medical incidents throughout his life that were pretty serious. Like he almost died in his thirties, he almost died in his forties. He then did die in his fifties, but he, I think he was always very aware of his mortality. And that kind of led to things. One is, I think, you know, he always looked at it. He says, you know, once you've lived through one really serious near death thing, you kind of change, it does really fundamentally change your perspective on how you want to spend your time and like what you value. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that all blessings are curses and all curses are blessings. I think it really helped him live a, a very uh, good life and a life where he got to prioritize what he cared about in the time he did have. And the second is he was very obsessed with, in I think a healthy way, like reflecting and leaving notes for his kids, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And one of those, awesome. the form of this book that he wrote, you know, uh, ostensibly for his children, but he also gave it to a lot of other people about called Lessons, Lessons, which was kind of like his 99 points on life. And, you know, it's, it's a good read, actually. It's a short read, but it's a good, it's a good read. It has a lot of good, good lessons in it. So you were kind enough to give me a copy of the book way back when, and I was looking for it before uh, we chatted today. If I remember correctly, there was a story about the t- what time he used to show up at the office <laughs> when he first started his job. Yeah. Do you remember that? No, he, I mean, so he, I can remember this, I mean, he would go to the office insanely early. He would be there literally at 4.30, at latest five in the morning. Uh, you know, he'd go from our house in New Jersey 
uh, over the bridge. And, you know, I think there's a few factors in that. One is, um, I mean, I hate bridge traffic too, right? Like, you know, if you, you know, the idea of commuting when everyone else is commuting and just spending an hour in traffic versus, you know, 15 minutes speeding down the, the West Side Highway or 20 minutes if you're being efficient about it is, you know, there, there's a night and day difference there. I mean, I, I, for a while, was commuting from San Francisco to New York. And I got to say, I'm sorry, from San Francisco to Facebook. And I did the same thing. I was, I would, I mean, I wasn't quite 4.30, but I would, I mean, it was, there was me and one other guy in the building from 6.30 to 9.30 every morning. Um, right. Uh, and so that was one piece. And the other thing is, it's like, I think, I think, I think you said in the book, which is true, is like, it's pretty easy to look smart when you had a three hour advantage on everyone else in the office. <laughs> right. And that's a big insight. Uh, you know, it's funny. That seemed like maybe just an anecdote, but uh, it, it felt like the first time I had seen someone really successful saying something that I had kind of operated with throughout my whole life. Yeah. Um, it also came up in, um, I believe it was in Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness. Yeah. The idea of figuring out a five-star experience and then brainstorming your way to a six-star and then a seven-star. This idea of just really absolutely overdoing it to make sure you win. Yep. And that is a concept that I was just talking to an intern about um, a week or two ago, giving them some career advice. And I'm like, just depends on what you want to do, but if you want to win, there's the five star, there's a seven star, there's a 9.30 arrival, and then there's a 3.30 a.m. arrival. Yeah. You yeah. can control outcomes. It, it was well, very inspiring for me, to validating for me to hear your dad through his book describe I, I that. Mean, I think that there's a lot of lessons in there, and I think, I think that's a good one. I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, I remember even when I was doing an internship in college, there was nothing internship. No one cared. I was always there, you know before the crack of dawn before anything opened and i'd have to sit in starbucks and wait for the office to open because i literally couldn't get into the building because like i very much internalized the be first in the office right, right. Um, and that meant now here here's the flip side to that which i've learned in my own life and i think my dad suffered from in some ways which is you gotta pick your battles then because there's always a cost right like if you're gonna be in the right. office at 4 30 in the morning you know, you're going to be out early. You just can't, it is impossible to work until midnight, right? And so you have to like refactor, you know, your life around that. You know, if you want to deliver a seven-star experience at certain things, other things will will slip. Um, and so I think actually the other important lesson for any intern or person coming up is like, actually, I think one of the most important things is, yes, work very hard, but almost more important is be really careful about the battles you pick. And then be okay releasing everything else, right? Um, and like releasing things that don't fit. Because you literally, I mean, the idea that you can consistently outwork everyone on everything all the time, you will kill yourself, right? You have to pick what matters. And I think a lot of people work really hard, but they pick the wrong battles um, is the other way to think about it. Sam, it was terrific having you on. Brilliant yeah, as man. always. Thanks for the insight. Good to see you, as always. awesome to have Sam on today. I think I'm always smarter after I talk to him. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.